Good evening, Mr. Becker. Thank you so much uh, for coming in today for podcast conversation. I've learned a lot about you and, and your career, um, and I'm excited. I've got a lot of things written down here. I usually don't I try not to prepare too much for my conversations, but I kept finding things online and watching you speak and, and just learning about your life and career that I was interested in. So I'm glad that we can do this today and have a little conversation. Well, thanks, Jake. I'm really glad to be here, and I'm totally curious about what you <laughs> what you've discovered online. It's a little scary. Well, I, I think the first thing is um, next year you're going to be head of school at Taft, place where you went, and uh, a beloved institution for you. And I think maybe we could start our discussion about what Taft was like for you as a student, um, and and why it was such a amazing place for you, somewhere where you want to go back to and lead. Um, you know, I know you, that you were born and grew up in New Orleans. Um, so coming to a New England boarding school was probably a whole new experience for you. And it, it was a successful, it seems like a successful opportunity. And just a little bit about what that was, was like for you. Uh, yeah, so it was, uh, it turned out okay. <laughs> Success was not inevitable. Um, and yeah, I'm a bit of a mutt actually geographically. So I actually grew up in Manhattan and then moved to New Orleans in the middle of my childhood, which was my mom's uh, family home. And I was in um, mostly in public school in New Orleans for, especially for uh, sixth, what, fifth through eighth grade. And so actually going to boarding school for me was uh, an incredible opportunity. It was made possible through financial aid and through my grandparents. And, um, I went from a, a, a pretty big seventh uh, through 12th grade um, magnet public school with, I think, about 2,000 kids um, to, which is all in one big building in the middle of New Orleans, to these sprawling fields of, of boarding schools when I was looking and ultimately uh, chose Taft. And I got to Taft and I wasn't. Um, particularly, you know, sort of well prepared. Um, and the school in a lot of ways taught me how to learn. Um, I, uh, and I shared a version of this with the school when I was announced as head back in the late fall. Um, I did not make uh, very good use of my first two years there. And uh, it was a little touch and go um, through ninth and 10th grade. And then through a series of events, sort of came back for junior year. And not unlike a lot of kids I've known over the years since then, um, but really uh, through a bunch of things that I was not in control of, I kind of got a second chance. And um, I, I bought in probably for the first time and decided to, um, to kind of go for it and take advantage of all the resources that were there. And a particular story that um, was among one of the turning points at the beginning of that 11th grade year was a teacher by the name of Steve Shefflin. He was one of a few faculty who um, really that year, I don't know, you know, I, I still go back in time and I'm like, what was going on ninth and 10th grade? I, I know there were teachers who were reaching out to me. I was not particularly receptive, I don't think. Um, and, and Steve Shefflin was an English teacher, um, coach, um, doing all the things and um, 
he, uh, the, the English department, I was in standard English and they said in the middle of that, that term, I think, uh, we think that you should move into whatever it was, honors English or something like that. And I was like, okay. So I moved into this other section and because the section I moved into was just reading the book that the section I had moved out of happened to have just finished. Mr. Shefflin, at least that was the reason he gave. Mr. Shefflin said, in the meantime, why don't you meet with me once or twice a week in my office and we're gonna read Billy Budd. And I had no concept of Billy Budd and Melville, any of this stuff. And it was in those, maybe four, six, I don't know how many meetings that were, but you think about how, I think now retrospectively, how precious those hours are for a boarding school teacher to take one-on-one -on -one with a kid who was very much a work in progress. And I, I point to that as when I learned how to learn, certainly how to read closely and develop a certain kind of confidence. Cause I think I was one of those kids who was probably just fine hanging in the background flying below the radar and his belief that I could do this thing uh, along with a bunch of other adults at the same time. And I happened to meet my future wife at the same time. Um, people believed in me and that gave me a certain kind of confidence to actually care and apply myself. And at that point, it really was sort of off to the races for me, just in the sense of taking advantage of everything academically, athletically. I started getting involved in the arts really for the first time since middle school, that was okay. Um, and and the rest of my kind of uh, both academic and life trajectory has been relatively positive since then, thank goodness. Hmm. Uh, but that at the, at the beginning of junior year, that was not obvious. So what do you think it was about Mr. Shefflin as an English teacher? He just, he devoted this time directed towards you to help you, I guess, build confidence in a, such a critical stage of your life. Um, you know, I, I really resonate with that a lot as an English teacher and being at a school like Gilman and like Taft and, mm -hmm. and like the Frederick Gunn school where you are right now. Uh, I, I feel like that's so important at our schools, you know, de devoting one-on-one -on -one time with students and really getting to know them and showing that you care about them on a one-on-one -on -one basis. So that really registers with me. Yeah, so we we here at Frederick Gunn, um, and we do this because of the kind of educator and person that Mr. Gunn was and, and Abigail Gunn, his wife. Um, we talk about hope-filled faculty. When I say that, I think about Frederick Gunn because I know his story really, really well and read his biography and, and all of that. Um, but I, I also think about a couple of people, including Steve Shefflin this way. Um, he had hope in me that exceeded any real reason or belief in me, which I think is probably the definition of hope, right? He had belief in me that exceeded the data that I was presenting to him and to other teachers. And rather than sort of be annoyed with me, um, focus on kids with more potential or who he sort of reached over the wall that I was putting up and he didn't do the work for me. You know, we, we've all as educators experienced that, like, look, kid, we can lead the horse to water, but at the end of the day, we really, 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 no matter how much parents would like it, we cannot make the kid drink. Um, 
he reached over and sort of helped me get a lot closer to the bucket and then sort of did that, like, look at what you can do. And it's, I think about back and forth, back and forth, because I'm also, I've done a lot of teaching and done a lot of coaching, um, how similar it is to uh, a coach building confidence in a player. Mm-hmm. Essentially, I know that if you follow this path and you actually do the work, you are going to make the improvement. And as you start as a kid, as you start to see that improvement, you're like, oh, I didn't know that I could do that. But look, I can do it. And it's sort of the next step and the next step and the next step. And eventually you, you become kind of that autodidact and you you reach the point where you can sort of teach yourself. But that hope filled, like he, he believed in me beyond um, what I was giving him. And not all teachers do that. Um, but he, he certainly did it for me, modeled it for me. And it's informed a lot of what I, what I do and think about ever since. Yeah, that's amazing. I think, I think that speaks to, you know, the power of the teacher to see into the future. You know, you, as a teacher, you've had experience and age and just life behind you where you know the formula for what it takes. And you can, you can really put that belief into a child because you know that they're, the formula for success in life really isn't too complicated. It's time, it's commitment, it's hard work, it's a little bit of luck, but it's really buckling down and doing what you need to do in this English class, reading Billy Bud to get to the next step, you know? And I think teachers can see that, at least good teachers can. And I think, you know, we've had two of our three kids have had the privilege of uh, growing up in a Montessori environment, which is not something I knew much about until they were in it. Um, I think what the teacher in the school, which is to say the sort of ecosystem of teachers collectively can also do for the kid, because the formula on, the, on one level seems pretty straightforward, but what teachers also can do, um, teachers and coaches and other, we, we I, I refer to them as non-parent adult mentors, um, is give students um, a taste, kind of an imagination of what they can achieve. Um, and for me, in in working with Mr. Shefflin, you know, I th- there were there were kids in my class. I'm sure I thought of as like, oh well, I'll never be as good at English, at reading or writing, um, and navigating the that Harkness dynamic. I'll never be as good as fill in the blank, you know, smart kid in mm-hmm. my my class. And what Steve sort of helped sort of coax me down the road without knowing that 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 was what was happening. He was like, he basically showed me like, you can totally hang with these people. You just need to frankly do the work. Um, And I didn't have an imagination for that. I saw myself as, you know, they're they're the the smart kids, the kids this comes easily to, uh, and I'm just not one of those. And he was like, essentially, you can totally be one of those. And and he did that, coaches did that for me. my advisor those two years really did that for me and it gave me a taste of uh sort of a <laughs> sort of a better version of of peter becker um than the one that my 15 16 year old self um was was carrying around in my in my head so i also read or, or i was watching your kind of incoming speech at taft i guess in the, mm. in the fall and um yeah. Yeah. um so i picked up on that story about mr shefflin but i also 
towards the end, you talk about William McMullen, who who you're coming in after at mm-hmm. Taft, who's had a long, illustrious career, 22 years at yeah. Taft. You describe that, you know, coming in after him is humbling and also daunting. Um, yeah. But I thought it was so interesting that he cut you your senior year from soccer. And um, I, I was thinking, you know, that experience must have done a lot for you in terms of rebounding from that because I can imagine how difficult that probably was for you senior year yeah it was uh, all my my best friends were on that team uh, I, I say that right and of course they weren't um, but <laughs> it felt like it at the time um, and uh, look nobody ever confused me for a really good soccer player um, ironically I've gone on to coach more soccer than probably any other sport but that's a, a different issue so you know, um, getting cut from that team, um, what it what it did was, I mean, all of a sudden I was one of those seniors without a fall sport. Like that, that was never on my radar of possibility. And um, I, I don't think I took it well at first. I then had a, I had a goal, which is to go to UVA and get in early. So it did help me put together a pretty good fall academically because I had uh, nothing uh, but time. And, um, you know, I, I, I have since cut a lot of kids from a lot of teams. Um, and it's, it's, it taught me pretty immediately that this is, this feels like the end of the world, the day that the list goes up and your name's not on it. Um, and then, you know, and then it's Tuesday, mm-hmm. right? Like these are, these are actually not that um, big of a deal. You're going to be fine. Your life didn't end. Um, you have a lot to be grateful for. I couldn't have said any of that in the moment, but again, I had, I was, I was moving at the same time into year two of what became this extraordinarily special relationship with a very wise woman, uh, my wife, Amy Julia. And so she was also a pretty good coach along the way to essentially be like, dude, get over it. Um, that means you can come visit me at Princeton maybe once, you know, in a while and stuff like that. So, um, I, I, you know, did it teach me resilience? I'm sure it did. In the moment, I was pretty much just a dude with a chip on his shoulder, um, and I had a great fall. Like the whole sprint, the whole senior year was amazing, um, and and I had time, which was a luxury that I had not had um, for most of school up until that point. So these experiences that you had at Taft, um, I'm just curious how they, they shaped your philosophy and maybe your willingness to get into education, because I know you did a variety of different things before going to Lawrenceville and, and becoming a teacher and a coach. Um, but but I love, you know, I watched a little bit of you talking about Frederick Gun School and how, how your mission there, your, or one of your goals is to turn students into forces in the world. And I really like that. I resonate with that a lot. Um, but really, your experience at Taft, I, I, I would assume, set you up for kind of this philosophy and education. Um, and I'd love if you wouldn't mind talking about how that came into play, how that came to be, just your philosophy. Yeah, and, and you know, it's funny. Um, I don't, I, I don't remember being confronted with that phrase, um, philosophy of education, until I applied for my current role, the head at Frederick Gunn School, uh, where I had to write it as part of the uh, as part of the application. Um, 
And I would say that it emerged gradually over time. I, I, I referenced, you know, I can sort of look back on, none of us had a perfect experience in high school. And so there, there are things I can point to from my time at TAP that I say, oh my gosh, that was totally transformative. And other parts that I, I would say, gosh, if I'm ever in charge of a school, I want to make sure we don't do that, right? Not bad, like not actively bad, but just, um, you know, not intentional, not necessarily aligned with mission and stuff like that as far as, um, so um, what happened for me in terms of developing that philosophy uh, of, of education um, was uh, actually my, my time at UVA was totally transformative and very formative in terms of um, both meeting some educators there as professors who uh, really taught me how to think uh, about some big picture issues that have been through lines for me uh, ever since then. Um, I volunteered uh, with an organization called Young Life and as a soccer coach at St. Anne's Belfield and got to work with students one-on-one -on -one and just really enjoyed um, that sort of early taste of mentorship. Um, and then um, I was on a trajectory to go into investment banking. I did that. And once I got there and sort of took a bite of the apple, I was like, oh, it doesn't actually taste as good as I thought I would. And for a variety of reasons that we can talk about or not, um, uh, made the decision to leave uh, with, within that first year. And I went to work for the same organization Focus, the Fellowship of Christians and Universities and Schools that my wife was working for um, with some local schools in Richmond, Virginia, where we were living at the time, um, and then getting back up into New England and, and other things like that. But what I got to do is work again with kids one-on-one. -on -one. And, um, and then it was through that that we decided to, to look at boarding schools. And I went back to, uh, to TAP and talked to Lance Otten, who was my head, legendary head uh, from that era. And, um, and I said to him, you know, Mr. Otten, how'd you know it was time to retire? So it was 2000, 2001, he was retiring. And he said, it's the first year that I can't remember the name of every kid in the school. And he was this sort of legendary figure in, in my life. Um, and he, he planted a seed about the possibility of us working in a boarding school long-term such that once we were doing it, once we were in the work at Lawrenceville, um, the combination of what I had started to think about as far as what is education for, how does student formation happen, the work uh, with kids one-on-one -on -one through focus, through coaching, and then at Lawrenceville, and then connecting back to my own experience, what I realized was the power of boarding schools in particular, this is true in day schools, but just not in that 24 seven way. So the power, the formative power of a boarding school, when it's really aligned with a mission very clearly, and all the adults are working in concert in their own diverse ways to create an environment, an ecosystem that um, equips the student to grow and thrive over time, um, to become essentially whatever it is that the school then says, well, this is what we want our graduates to, to be like and to do in the world. So for the Frederick Gunn School and, and Mr. Gunn's biography and model has informed my own philosophy of education pretty much every day since I first picked up his biography uh, as I was thinking about applying for this job. 
So for him, it was active citizenship, moral character development towards the end of active citizenship, which we sort of shrink down to be this thing, to be a force for good in the world. And other schools have other goals or ends in mind for their students. Um, and, and that's a beautiful thing. That's actually one of the things I love about independent schools. But so my, my philosophy of education is really one about um, what the power a school uh, can have in the life of a student if they start with who are these students and faculty as human creatures? How do we as humans learn and grow most effectively? Um, and that's that sort of path that you referenced about how growth, like it is kind of formulaic actually. Um, and, and when everybody in one of these intense independent school environments um, is on board with that program, the, the opportunity for growth is, um, I mean, really unique in, um, in education, pretty much, mm -hmm. you know, full stop. Yeah, I, I almost think of uh, independent schools, boarding schools as like many social experiment experiments, you know, like each school has devoted years and years of education um, and, and trying different things out. And it's interesting to me, you know, I've been doing interviews with heads of schools and different teachers. A lot of the mission statements are very, very similar. You know, it's, it's building men and women of character to enter the world and, and to shape the communities that they live and work in as adults. Um, you know, whether this is the language or not turning kids into forces for good in the world, building character traits like respect, humility. Um, I know you talk a lot about excellence and striving towards excellence. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I did an internship my, my junior year uh, going into senior year of college at Choate. So I got a little bit of a taste for what the boarding school life was like. And you know, I, I see what you're saying, the 24 hours around the clock uh, interaction between adults and, and students um, that definitely, you know, it, it has a huge effect. Yeah. And I, I actually don't I'm, I've been convinced recently that I don't think uh, many of our schools have um, have developed, I think, sufficiently their um what i'll call like sort of theory of human growth and change um and so i've been really influenced so i've been influenced by a, a bunch of different people but one of them is uh, a scholar at uva named james hunter james davison hunter um and he wrote a book um around some of this called death of character um moral formation in an age without good or evil so it's it's it sounds bleak uh, and to some degree his diagnosis is a little bit bleak but the, the positive side of it is and i've been influenced recently by a lot of the the conversation re, um in the last sort of 10 years around habit formation which is both new and really really old in human um human history and i would love for independent schools boarding and day to uh to really step back and and evaluate um, what 
what do we think are the component pieces that enable, um, you know, for me, it's high school, but middle school, high school students um, through these really dramatic phases of, of learning and growth to, um, uh, to, to grow, to change with, with a particular goal in mind. So citizenship is for the Frederick Gunn School, what we have in mind, active citizenship. And so um, how, does, how does a high school student in 2023 uh, move along the continuum from, you know, most 14 year olds are not particularly interested in being an active citizen. They're, they're, they're more interested in themselves, right? Their own, uh, app, you know, satisfying their, their kind of immediate appetites. Mm -hmm. We're not surprised by that. We're not bothered by that. That's who the kid is. Great. And when we meet the kid who's already pretty altruistic, phenomenal, but we can't design around them. We have to design around your sort of typical 14 year old kid from all these different backgrounds. And then you say, well, how does, you know, and I think Steve Shefflin would have been a brilliant person to ask. Frederick Gunn uh, had really good instincts around this. How do you nurture and support the the student through the the inevitable process of sort of trial and error um recognizing that by by age 18 you know by senior year that student has capacities for metacognition and and self-evaluation that they just don't have when they're 14. Mm -hmm. um and then how do we train all of our teachers and administrators and frankly parents in that theory. So we're a little bit less surprised when high school kids act like high school kids um, and can meet their, their frenetic energy, their anxiety, um, their, their sort of typical behavior with, um, with an approach that uh, sort of receives them the way they are and then does that work. And it's often one-on-one -on -one through a coach or you know, a teacher um to equip them to become those sort of the the have the capacity to do that self teaching which is a uniquely human capacity mm -hmm. you know mm -hmm. yeah um I, i've been thinking a lot recently about just the future with chat gpt and you know phones and devices and earphones like you go walk into class everyone's got earphones in and phones in front of them and computers and it's no one's fault but it's just the the world that we're living in right now um and the artificial intelligence is really i mean it's fascinating to me it's interesting but it's also sort of scary um mm. and i'm curious you know from your perspective stepping into the head of school at a boarding school like what challenges or uncertainties do you really see in the future like the next 10 10 years here with just technology, the after effects of COVID, I think playing a huge social, um, uh, social enabler or disabler in some ways, like it's hard for students to have conversations with each other. I feel like after a period of such disconnect, um, are you pretty hopeful? Or are you, are you, um, optimistic? Uh, what, what's kind of on your mind in the next 10 years yeah. regarding this? I'm I'm super hopeful, um, you know, because you know I just mentioned sort of what humans are able to do. So humans are able to do really terrible things. You know, we're the only 
uh, I think species that were that might exterminate itself. Um, squirrels, you know, squirrels are not going to uh, undermine their own existence, um, but they're also not going to create, you know, uh, Chat GPT. So, or or fly to the moon, or you know, um, all all the things. So, I think it is. I think one one thing I've been thinking a lot about uh, thinking about a lot recently is I'll bring this back around to technology because I I think a lot about the technology, but I think it's a symptom, not a cause, um, and then it becomes uh, you know part of the cause. But uh, the 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 concern right now, the rightful concern right now about anxiety and depression. Um, you know, rising rates of suicide and 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 other really tragic things like that. Um, I I think the challenge ahead of us, the opportunity ahead of us, is take a step back and ask questions about what does it mean to be human, and that we need to go back to both ancient and much more recent sources, and um, and recognize that the students who 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 walk through our schools aren't going to have good answers for that. They're not going to have thought about it any more than the class before them and the class before them. So we keep getting better at this as adults, but we sort of forget the kids are the same level of development that they pretty much have been all along. So I think of the 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 challenge, what does it mean to be human? What are we for? What what is what is life for? These are ancient questions that we used to kind of ask. And many, many families have said like, I don't know. Um, and schools have also kind of given up because we're a little bit worried that if we're too definitive about that, that our, our families are gonna accuse us of brainwashing or, okay. And that's a good thing to be concerned about maybe, but in the meantime, we've just left a void, a vacuum. And so, I, I'm starting to think that the 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 crisis of anxiety and depression is really a crisis about meaning and purpose. That we're not doing a good enough job coming alongside our students, um, and in part because if we admit it, that like, we might not know the answer. Um, and folks like Lisa Miller, she's a um, professor at um, Columbia. I listen to a lot of Krista Tippett. Um, the On Being podcast and the On Being project are not afraid of these questions. They're not afraid of the messiness of it. And that for me has been an invitation both with my own kids and with students to say, look, my job is not to tell you what the meaning of life is, but my job is to invite you into the conversation because it's going to really matter that you in these transformative teenage years begin to develop the the capacity to ask and explore and start to answer some of these questions for yourselves and in the absence of that invitation and the absence of giving students practice at answering some of those questions they i mean literally are left to their own devices and guess what TikTok and snapchat and instagram and all the stuff are super happy to fill that void mm -hmm. and what I experience as a parent myself, I experience it as an advisor to my, my group of advisees, 
Um, and what I see from a lot of other parents and a lot of educators who are incredibly capable people, we're all feeling really overmatched by, again, the symptom, the technology that then becomes its own cause. And so my hope comes from developing, and I think we honestly have to do this school by school, educator by educator, the capacity to start to get back to some big questions about the meaning and purpose of life, what does it mean to be human? And then let's engage these devices. Because right now we don't have a standpoint from which to, to really have a theory about um, artificial intelligence. We're just worried. And if you're <laughs> from, from conversations I've, I've been having, you're more worried if you're um, in an English department than if you're in a physics department or, you know, or a science department, right? Um, that's a little, you know, broad brush, but um, we don't really know why we're worried. We just know that there's something going on that is not actually human. It's not actually for humans, right? It, it's not interested in human flourishing. Mm -hmm. um, and we don't know how to get the genie back in the bottle. And the reality is we're not going to. And so we have to figure out how to equip this next generation of students starting today with how to use these devices wisely and well, not how to how to get the genie back in the bottle. It's just not going to happen. Now, I think there are some moves that, you know, lots of educators have been making for a long time um, where um, we, we can give students, um, you know, just a little bit more structure. Again, I'm thinking about this in the context of a boarding school where we try to get kids to like turn the light out. <laughs> uh, I, I ran a dorm the year that the iPhone came out and then the year that it went from Wi-Fi connectivity to the internet only to 3G. And I remember when 3G happened, all of a sudden I was like, oh my gosh, we right. just lost control. You know, Wi-Fi used to cut out at 11. Now, like, woo, how do we adapt? And you you have to adapt. And it may be that, like, you make every kid put the phone outside and get an alarm clock. This is, you know, Deerfield and St. Andrews are getting good press around some of those, like, pretty basic moves. And and I'm sort of curious, like, why have they had the courage to do that? And the rest of us, including myself, are like, oh, I'm a little bit worried that the kids are going to be upset and the parents aren't going to like it and blah, 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 blah. Like, mm. I think they're doing right by their kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think you make a really interesting point, uh, an important point about responsibility and teaching responsibility almost, you know, because all of these tools, these technological tools are helpful if used in the right way. I mean, we're talking over Zoom right now. We connected over email that the Internet came out at one point and people were probably really scared about that. Um, you know, the future of technology, yes, things are going to change and we're going to adapt to it. But I think the root, um, you know, capabilities of, of humans will be forever. And uh, responsibility as a young person is one of the most important things to learn and understand. I think, um, you know, for students to understand what they're passionate about or, or what they like is really important because then you have something to orient your, yourself towards and to strive for, for 
and can use these tools in pursuit of that that goal and it's less you know it's less hazy and uncertain than it is you know right now when you're just thinking about the future of technology yeah and i i, I was a history teacher and and i um i think we can have wonderful debates about like if you had to pick just one discipline for every student to really get good at what would it be i would pick history um because i think history shows that humans are um and that this is true of every one of us including me uh really capable of beautiful grace-filled loving things and horrible anti-human destructive things and um i'm really intrigued i've never met mark zuckerberg probably never will he's a boarding school kid like whatever we think the impact of facebook and meta and i'm i'm not a i'm not on the positive train on that on that thing that you know he he's a product of one of our schools and so we had an opportunity to um to shape this one individual who's gone on to have such a profound impact on uh global culture um and to some degree sort of that's that's on us um so i don't believe in unfettered technology uh, i really would be an advocate of you know teachers still requiring students to um to write essays in class and, and just have to deal with that a little bit and at the same time i want them to learn how to use chat gpt and the other um you know what large language things um uh, really really well mm -hmm. um I, I was playing around with it last week and so i was like um I can't remember how I phrased it because I'm you learn pretty quickly that how you phrase the question um, uh, generate you know uh, really can be determinative of the results. So I started asking it for what are the top five strategic priorities for a boarding school in New England. Hmm. Gave me a pretty pretty good answer in the sense of like uh, yeah those are like the five things and I it, it cut out in the middle of it and so I hit regenerate and it gave me a slightly different list the next time that's not inherently bad except for if i just relied on that all of a sudden i'm forfeiting my human capacity to think for myself to think with colleagues around a table and come up with answers that that are in some way that we might not be able to prove in a test tube but uniquely human mm -hmm. so yeah and authentic um I think that's important. Well, I, I, the other thing I'd like to ask you about today is is just the legacy of Willie McMullen, and uh, you know you're you're hmm. you're taking over for him uh, in July at Taft. Um, so, what are some of the things that I guess going into your role as the head of school at Taft that you want to keep the same or change, and maybe what will you be bringing with you from your career um, at the Frederick Gunn School? Uh, to this new position? Well, I'll start just with Willie. I mean, you know, he is a consummate educator leader and uh, has been, uh, is not only a graduate of Taft, but has worked there since, I think, 1982. And, um, and so that legacy of faithfulness to a particular place, we all know, is, is a lot... Um, a lot more rare these days than it used to be. And 
and as he said, I think uh, he said a version of this um, uh, the day that he introduced me, um, you know, his love for the place is just really remarkable. And so I, I really respect anyone, but particularly him for uh, for the ability to to love a place and be committed to a place over time. Um, it, it's really remarkable. Uh, and and admirable and on basically by definition, right? I can't live up to that. I've worked at two other schools. You know, um, I love Taft, but um, I, I I may never love Taft as much as as he does. And there's just such a goodness to to that. Um, I think um, so. I don't have a big sort of change list or change agenda. Um, I think that would be uh, that would be foolish. I think that. Um, I think that Taft, I mean, it goes back to, frankly, a, a version of what I was saying before, and really the work that we've been doing here at Frederick Gunn for the last um, 11 years is to, without getting into navel gazing, just really keep asking that question, why do we exist? You know, why does this particular school in this particular place and this particular time exist? And so for this school, there just happens to be this amazing founder. I mean, I would say Frederick Gunn, I've read lots of biographies of, of different heads of boarding schools, um, huge John McPhee fan. So the headmaster, um, Boyden at Deerfield, like I get, I get all the stories. Um, I would say Frederick Gunn is the most remarkable boarding school founder that I know of, bar none. Would love for people to share counter examples mainly because it would just be such good stories coming together. And so it was really easy to help, no, I'm sorry, <laughs> it wasn't easy. It was really fun uh, and life-giving, I think, certainly for me and for everyone else involved. And it was a total team effort to say, all right, let's go into this person's life and his wife's life and legacy. You know, he was born and raised in Washington, Connecticut. He's the son of uh, two people who died when, uh, you know, a couple who died in a pandemic when he was 10 years old, raised as an orphan by his older brother, kind of listless um, after finishing at Yale, and then was a, essentially a convert to the abolitionist cause. He set out to prove abolitionism wrong first, uh, and his older brother, two older brothers were outspoken abolitionists. And then he realized like, oh no, I'm wrong. So the ability to change your mind when your older brother and align with an older brother, like that's a superhuman thing move in the first place. Uh, and then to dedicate his life to that and leading the Underground Railroad to becoming a founder of the outdoor camping movement in the United States, dedicated to a particular uh, town, build a school, and just a remarkably thoughtful educator. Um, once you start to tease that out, you're like, oh my gosh, like, yes, let's just do that. Mm -hmm. So the goal of moving to my alma mater, my wife's alma mater is not to, to, to make Taft like some other school. It's to say, okay, what's in the Taft DNA? And, and not every school can be proud of every element of its DNA. And so you have to sort of tease that out and you have to, to make, um, sort of, you have to reconcile um, yourself sometimes to that, and the school does institutionally. But what is it in the Taft DNA? And I'm really, you know, Taft has this beautiful portrait of a graduate that was a product of work that Willie led in his first couple of years um, that I think is a, a wonderful sort of picture of what 
um, a graduate of that particular school could be. It would resonate with lots of schools, but it has some, some elements that are particular to Taft. Taft has had the motto, non ut sibi mini stretor, sed ut mini stret, not to be served, but to serve uh, since, since Mr. Taft started the school. And he talked about educating the whole child. And I think when he did it, it was 1890. It maybe was a little bit more unique than it is today. But I'm excited to, to, to really learn the place all over again. I haven't spent a ton of time there in the last 30 years. Um, and, and then begin to ask the question, so who are we? Why do we exist? And then are we living up to that? No school, Mr. Gunn said, I had toward the end of his life, he said, I have in mind the ideal of a school. And he goes on to say, and you ask me, have I ever seen the ideal? And he's been running the school he started for 26 years. He says, I've never seen this ideal. And so to enter a place that was so transformative for me, had such an impact on, on my wife, on my brother, on a lot of my good friends, and to say, all right, what are we here for? Are we doing service? Are we educating the whole child? We're never doing it as well as we can. And then um, let's let's set ourselves to that. And what do we want to be for the next sort of 25 years? And uh, I think every school should be doing that basically all the time. It doesn't have to be threatening. It can be really exciting. It can really, I mean, you, there's so much in every school that you just can affirm. You'd be like, oh my gosh, look at you're you're doing service so well here, and you're doing you know educating the whole child so well over here. That's awesome. How do we just do it more and better? Mm -hmm. um, and so that that I think is what the work is about. I'm excited just to to get to know the place again. Um, uh, yeah, for the kind of all over again. Love it. Well, Mr. Becker, thank you so much. Um, one last thing that we do on the podcast episodes is I, I usually ask each guest for a book recommendation, but it seems like the Frederick Gunn biography has come up multiple times and it's, you know, it's, it's top of your list. But if you have any other suggestions, I, I really want to read that book. I want to learn a little bit more about him. I only know just the, you know, the Wikipedia overview and that's a shame, you know? So I'm well, gonna, I'm gonna... I do, I, I recommend, so it was, it was originally called the master of the gunnery. Um, and it is, um, newly reproduced as the biography of Frederick Gunn. And I recommend it to everybody, especially if you like 19th century, um, literature. It's each chapter is written by a different alum. And then the last chunk is um, his some of his writings and letters. So it is if you're an educator, or the leader of a school, it is life giving. Um, and then the other one that I would mention um, is a book by a guy named Thomas Dezengotita, who I, I don't know if he's still teaching part time at Dalton and part time at NYU. But he wrote it in the early 20th century, uh, 21st century, um, and it's called uh, "Mediated." And he put his finger on some of many of the the trends that we see today in the the ways in which our relationship to technology and screens, in particular, uh, shape us. So there's this this thing, um, captured Greece took its captor captive, and it's about the Roman Empire taking taking over hmm. Greece and then hell, the Hellenization of the Roman Empire. And I think about that a lot with these 
these devices in our pockets. We, we buy them, we're the owner of them, and then they take us captive and have this formative impact on us. And Thomas Dezengotina put his finger on this before Facebook, before uh, Instagram, before any of it, before the iPhone. And I read it when I was a teacher at Lawrenceville and I've um, been an evangelist for it ever since. Love it. I'm going to have to read that too, especially with the artificial intelligence stuff, because I think that's, that's very, uh, very important. Well, Peter, thank you so much for your time today. I wish you the best of luck as you, uh, as you go to Taft and, and, you know, I hope, uh, the rest of the year at Frederick Gunn goes well, but thank you so much for joining us today. I appreciated, uh, talking to you. Thanks, Jake. I appreciate it. Uh, and good luck to you and everybody else at Gilman. Thank you. See you soon. Take care.